thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. It all started on a two-week camping trip in Bundaran, County Donegal, Northern Ireland, in August 1974. Friends Michael Bradley, Billy Doherty and brothers Vince and John O'Neill decided they wanted to start a band. The group had existed as an idea for about six months, but only in the minds of John, Vince and Billy. Michael was in the same class as Vince at St Peter's Secondary School, just over nine miles north of where the boys were camping on the Atlantic coast. Bradley said, I don't suppose it was much of an initiation into the world of rock and roll. It was more of a case of, do you want to be in the group? All right. Do you want more beans? Michael Bradley and Vince O'Neill's friendship began simply. The pair lived in the same direction from school. Tuesdays was when the music charts would be announced on BBC Radio 1, and the pair would rush home together at lunchtimes to listen in to the countdown, eagerly discussing who they thought would be at the coveted number one slot that week. However, Bradley admits he wasn't the biggest music fan in the world. He said, I was just going along with things, thinking of something to say to Vinnie when we would discuss the chart. I don't like that new Gary Glitter song, Too Slow. Aye, that's right, Too Slow. At the time of the camping trip, and for a while afterwards, the unnamed group had no instruments, no drum kit, no electric guitars, no amplifiers. With no instruments with which to practice, there were no songs either. But this didn't stop the boys discussing the future of the band, who would play what instrument, and what kind of songs they were going to make, all of it in their heads. They would sit in the front room of the O'Neill's terrace house, play records, drink tea and talk about the group, which didn't even have a name. Bradley says, Looking back on it, their mother and father were very accommodating. I must have called in every night. The O'Neills would all be sitting in their back room, watching the TV. John and Vinnie with their wee brother Damien and their sister Deirdre and Mr and Mrs O'Neill. And both Billy and I would be sitting there with them. We weren't great conversationalists either. How are you doing, Mr O'Neill, was about the height of it and we'd sit and take tea and eat their toast and be 15 years old. Occasionally we would hear the odd hint about the overcrowding when a friend of Mr O'Neill, Patsy Duffy, would call in. Full house tonight, Louis? Aye, it's like a flipping youth club. But we wouldn't go away. The crowd would watch TV together for a few hours, then either John or Vinnie would say, come on, we'll go into the other room, and the band would decamp to the front room where their record player was. John, who was two years older than Bradley and Vince, had already got a decent collection of LPs. He also had a definite musical taste, so the talk about songs and the group was often led by him. There was one obvious problem that needed to be overcome. They didn't have a singer. It wasn't a huge problem, because they didn't have any instruments either, 
but they did realise that if they were going to get anywhere at all, they'd need to get one. It was Billy Doherty, the future drummer, but for now the owner of a pair of bongos, who had the answer. There's a boy in my class would be great. Who, Sharky? Aye. Doherty had been talking about Sharky for a few weeks. Sharky was well known, especially to the boys from St Peter's, due to the fact that he'd always won every Fay competition he'd ever entered, and appeared in the papers every year with cups and medals and a huge grin. Apart from this achievement in Irish dancing, he was also known for wearing a red checked suit. The mid-70s in Ireland was the era of parallel wide-leg trousers worn well above the ankle. It was also the era of the high-buttoned French flare and the platform shoe, but it was never the era of red checked suits. Word at the school was that he got it from a relative in America and he used to receive a lot of abuse from some of the other boys. Billy asked Fergal Sharkey to join his still unnamed group that had no instruments. Sharkey agreed, and suddenly things started to move for them all. Bradley remembered, None of us had any money at the time, apart from the few pounds John and Vinnie got for working in their father's fruit and vegetable shop on a Saturday. But we had already a sort of savings club, one pound a week, which was originally to pay for the camping holiday the year before. We kept it up sporadically and bought things like Billy's bongos and a microphone. Nothing to plug it into, but it was good to know you had one. But what we needed was some capital. So with Mr O'Neill as a guarantor, we got a couple of hundred pounds from Provident, the loan company, who provided what's called a Provident cheque. The only problem was that it wasn't like a cash loan. As I remember, the cheque was only taken at certain shops, which is why our equipment was brought in a music and electrical shop in Rappo, just over the border in Donegal. Fergal's brother Jimmy had a car, so he was pressed into service for the day. At the O'Neill's house that night, the fruits of the Sharkey's trip to Donegal was displayed for the rest of the band, a drum kit, a bass guitar and two amplifiers. We were nearly like a real group, Bradley said. From then on, we each paid £2 a week towards paying off the money, Playing a show was still four months off. Actually getting paid for a show was a year off. So meanwhile, we practiced and we paid. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of the Undertones. Fergal Sharkey, the newly appointed singer, was also Fergal Sharkey's scout leader. He wore the blue uniform of the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland and his troop were based in a small hall in Cregan. Next door to the hall there was another building used by the Scouts. The group was allowed to practice upstairs and to keep their amps and drums there too, to the great relief of the O'Neills, in whose house the boys had been practicing in Vince and John's bedroom. A few nights a week the band practiced and very slowly started to build up their repertoire. After four months, they'd written almost four songs, so Fergal arranged a show for them to work towards, a gig for his scout troop. The group's first gig was still a few weeks away when it was dealt its first crisis. Bradley and Vince were coming home from school and were talking about the scout hall show and the practising and this and that, when Vince said, I'm not in the group anymore. He had to concentrate on his O-levels. Bradley didn't react well to this news, I spluttered and galled and said, I wouldn't stand for this, wait till I see the rest of them and so on, but nothing came of it. At the time I suspected the decision wasn't entirely his own. I think there might have been a bit of parental pressure. But whatever the reason, we were down a guitar player, and the Scout Hall show was coming up. 
As none of us had ever been in a band before, we didn't have a list of guitar players we could ring up and audition. I think we tried one boy and gave up. Well, not exactly gave up. We decided to ask Vinnie and John's younger brother, Damien. Damien had been ploughing his own furrow at the time. He ploughed it with a lovely red electric guitar and his own amplifier. Now you might ask, why wasn't he in the group from the start, as he was better equipped than the rest of us? And the answer is, I don't know. But I think it's because he was too young. There's only 18 months difference between Vinnie and Damien, but when you're 15, that's a big age gap. So he wasn't part of the gang. You clip him round the ear on the odd occasion, but that would be the only contact. Anyway, Vinnie was out, Damien was in, and that was that. So I'm the second youngest in the family. Um, my eldest brother, Jim, was kind of in, into folk music, so he was the first one to actually have a guitar in the, in the house. Um, being a few years older as well, he was kind of into Cat Stevens. and So he was playing sort of folk stuff. And because he had a gut string guitar, nylon string guitar lying around the house, he would occasionally show us the odd chord or two to John, Vincent or me or whatever. And we sort of got fascinated by, by this instrument. So that's where, why we kind of wanted to learn to play, you know, pick it up and strum it and et cetera, et cetera. So it was kind of a natural follow-on from my brother, really. I was, I was 14, I started learning to play properly. And then I actually had to turn, well, basically I went and bought a, a second-hand electric guitar and an amplifier for like 20 pounds or something. And meanwhile, the others were still learning on acoustic guitars and bongos. So they were just a little bit jealous that I was electrified and they weren't. So eventually... I, the reason why I got into the Undertones was basically my brother Vincent kind of decided to leave to study for his O-levels, or so they say anyway, or my mum tells me that story anyway. Anyway, so he, he sort of the, left the band and I sort of found my way in that way. They didn't really want me in, or I know Mickey Bradley didn't because Vincent was his best friend, you see. So he was kind of the little brother taking over. It didn't, didn't go down too well with him. On a wet Thursday night in February 1976, the still unnamed group played their first show at the Scout Hall in Cregan, playing rhythm and blues songs and having to repeat them two or three times to fill the time slot, as well as trying to keep the 60 or so Cub Scouts all aged between 9 and 11 off the stage, if you could call it a stage, rather a platform that stood only a few inches off the ground. Emergency cases. The band was offered another gig at St Joseph's Secondary School a month later, None of them went to that school, but a teacher there was looking for groups for its variety concert. The assembly hall at St Joseph's had a proper stage, and the whole school made up the audience. Bradley said, I'd been panicking about it. It could have been stage fright, but I wanted something to happen so the show would be called off. Then I could go home and watch TV and forget all about having to go on stage and play in this group. I couldn't admit this, of course, or I'd be out with Vinny. Fortunately, nothing did go wrong, and the band assembled on the stage behind the curtain ready to go. The teacher making the announcements turned to the band and asked what their name was. Sharky answered, the Hot Rods. And before the rest of the bands could interject, the newly christened Hot Rods were introduced and had to start playing. The problem with Sharky calling the band the Hot Rods is that there was already a London pub rock group called Eddie and the Hot Rods, who were playing regular residencies in London pubs and clubs, playing with the likes of the 101ers, the Sex Pistols, and, later that summer, were in competition with ACDC to see who could cram more fans into the Marquee Club. As such, the name only lasted one show. We went down great, actually. 
Really and, that, and that was probably that really was a huge uh, boost for our confidence. Oh, no, I absolutely Mad. despised and loathed us every second of it. Plus that, you know, they were kind of waiting to go, well, the summer holidays are here and we have to stand in this gymnasium listening to this lot uh, for the next 20 minutes when we should be outside sort of robbing archets and nicking cars and yeah. doing whatever people do yeah, during the school holidays. The band now had six songs in its repertoire. So during the summer of 1976, they practiced, listened to records, practiced more, and began to ask around to get some proper shows. No more schools or scout halls. The O'Neills had a cousin who was in the Waterside Youth Club, and he arranged for the group to do a show there on a Sunday afternoon to about 30 teenagers. For this show, the band went by the name Little Feet, spelt F-E-A-T. This was another name dredged up by Sharky, and yet another name stolen from a successful band, this time the US country blues band of the same name, and spelling, that span out of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. The real Little Feet sold millions of records in America, having two albums certified gold there before their name had been stolen by Sharky. They had also received glowing reviews in the music press, including the NME, and had appeared on the BBC's The Old Grey Whistle Test. In the end, it was drummer Billy Doherty who came up with an original name that stuck. He was reading a history textbook for a homework project and came across the phrase undertones of violence. Doherty suggested the name The Undertones to the others because it sounded like, but crucially wasn't, The Ramones. By this point, The Ramones had released their first album, which featured probably their most recognisable and most well-known song, Blitzkrieg Bop. They were also at the spearhead of a new musical revolution known as punk rock, playing short, fast songs made up of a few simple chords and a straight beat. At this time in Northern Ireland, it was nearly impossible to hear bands like the Ramones. They weren't played on the radio, apart from on John Peel's show, and their LP wasn't easily available in the shops. But they were being played in one house in Derry, John O'Neill and Billy Doherty's friend, Donald McDermott's house. McDermott's record collection provided the undertones with a whole new repertoire. Out went the Rolling Stones, Dr Feelgood and Eric Clapton, and in came Iggy and the Stooges, the Ramones, and the Shadows of Night. And that changed everything. It was like, wow. We can, <laughs> it was um, just some seminal moment. We can do this. It, it was infectious, the great hooks, great short songs, and you didn't need to know a lot of chords to play it, you know? So it suited us really well, because we, you know, at the time we weren't great musicians, but it was, it was just the energy of it we loved. These new songs didn't go down any better with the audiences the undertones were playing to at the odd collection of venues they were playing. Bradley said, I don't know who was arranging the dates, I just turned up, but they were becoming a little strange. We were playing in a parish hall on a Thursday night as warm-up for the Irish country band Anne Shelley and the Marines. No harm to them, but we shouldn't have been there at all. This occurred to us after about six or seven songs but we were supposed to play for another couple of hours. There's nothing more disheartening than being on a stage, the singer giving it everything, the drummer sweating, the guitar players thrashing away and young fellas and girls standing there, mouths open, arms folded, feet definitely not dancing. Anne Shelley and the Marines weren't due on until 11 o'clock and it wasn't even half nine. Luckily, Billy had a plan. The man in charge of the hall was called Eddie Davis. He'd been involved in bands and football for years. The undertones took a short break and Doherty went to find Davis to see if they could get away early, put them out of their misery. 
The excuse he used was that he had a night shift to get to, but Davis knew a lie when he heard it and refused to let the band off the hook that easily. Bradley adds, You would have thought that experience would have stopped us playing youth clubs, but to be honest we weren't really in a position to be choosy about where we played. We couldn't turn down the offer of supporting a band called Honey in St Mary's Youth Club, for example. I wish we had, though, because my one abiding memory is standing on the stage playing Anarchy in the UK and seeing a friend of mine who grew up beside me walking through the crowd. He saw me, and I didn't know who was more embarrassed. But Derry wasn't all youth clubs, scout halls and schools. It also had the Casbar. The Casbar was a pub, and it had a bad name, but it also had bands in to play. We saw the band on the Casbah, which was fantastic gig, and I love, always loved the Casbah. And the barmen in the Casbah, if you pogoed, all the bottles started flying off the walls and stuff. And they had these wet towels, and all the kids instinctively knew when to duck on her. And I kept getting wet towels in the face, and I asked where's the toilet, and they said, well, you can have that wall there or that wall. It was just it was fantastic, because I really loved it. Once we got a regular thing in the Casbah, to try and keep it interesting for us, we'd try and do a new song every week. And, that, and it, was also, it was easier to try and write a song than doing a cover version because yeah. you have to work out, well for me anyway, I, was, yeah. I, could, I had never agreed a year and stuff working yeah. in chords and that sort of thing. So it was easier to try and you know, put a few Rush chords together, which made it easier for me. <laughs> the general clientele at the Casbah was largely made up of hippies however, and the young punks didn't like hippies. We hated dudes, remembered Bradley. Not hate in any violent sense, but hate all the same. We hated their music, we hated their clothes, all that cheesecloth, and we hated their hair. Very petty and narrow-minded, I know, but that's what it's like when you're 17, isn't it? All right, I admit we were odd. We couldn't see past the hair. I don't mean that literally. This was early 1977, and if you ever look at photographs taken at the time, you'll see that long hair was the norm. Teachers had long hair, your uncles had long hair, politicians had long hair, but we had short hair. Of course, a year earlier we had longish hair as well, but then we saw photos of the Sex Pistols and pictures of the other punk bands, and the summer of 76 was very hot. I think a word of credit as well to my mother, who told me that short hair was coming back. I didn't believe her, of course. Wishful thinking on her part, I thought. The undertone's obsession with long hair lasted for a good few years, Anybody they met, either in record companies, in other bands, or even if they were roadies working for them, had to have short hair. There they were then, in this den of iniquity, filled with hippies, and they knew that if they performed well and impressed the crowd, let alone the manager, they'd get more bookings in the Casbah. They were good, well, different. Their set closed with a punk version of the Van Morrison song Gloria. As the song came to a crescendo, Sharky and Doherty had whipped themselves into such a frenzy that they kicked apart the drum kit and knocked over the amps. At the end of the night, the bar manager told them they should come back. That was the start of 18 months of regular bookings in the Casbah. Alright, Casbah, 24th of February 1977, we got £20. We've definitely made a name for ourselves. It was fucking brilliant. For sake, it had to be brilliant. Sound was fair, all right. Fair? I don't think we would have been looked on as a brilliant new group if Billy hadn't demolished the drums at the end of TVI. He just went mad along with me and John, getting all the feedback we could. We're invited back in two weeks' time, and if that goes well, we'll be playing there regularly. Like I said, this is the year of the undertones. <laughs> Classic stuff. 
On Friday or Saturday nights, they play from half past nine to eleven, with a five-minute break at about quarter past ten. At the start, one or two of their friends could be seen in the crowd, looking as out of place as the undertones did. But within a few months, more and more people had begun to show up who weren't regulars, who'd come to see the band, not just to drink in the pub. These regular bookings at the Casbah meant regular money coming in to buy strings, the odd new amplifier, and to pay off the Provident loan, which was still costing them £2 a week. The band even had transport, a white escort van, courtesy of Sharky's new job as a TV repairman at Radio Rentals. It usually took a couple of runs, but the van took the drums, amps and guitars all back to Mrs Sims' shed where the undertones were now based. Mrs Sims was the mother of Bradley's sister's boyfriend, as well as his brother's girlfriend, and after the room next to the scout hall in Cregan had been broken into and an amp stolen, it was suggested they moved into a shed at the back of her house. The shed had duly been cleared out, the walls lined with polystyrene packing from radio rentals, which were then covered with old blankets for soundproofing, and the band moved in. Playing in the Casbah did wonders for the undertones. For a start, it earned them £40 a week, but it also made them write and learn new songs, one of which was Teenage Kicks. Bradley says, Whenever I meet people who saw us there, they always have a story. What about the time Sharky sang with a paper bag over his head? What about the time Sharky put his foot through the floor? There was a basement underneath the floor of the Casbah, and with people jumping up and down while the undertones played, the floor would go up and down with them. Routinely, the bar staff would actually come out from behind the bar to stop people from dancing. Casbah, for the purposes of history, was actually a portico that you'll see on any building site anywhere in the world. So we're not talking about some sort of grandiose venue here. Um, that had actually been placed over a hole in the ground where the previous establishment had been bombed to oblivion. Good as the Casbah was, it occurred to the undertones that they should be looking for gigs outside of Derry. That's how they played at Belfield, part of the University of Dublin in June 1977. They had been invited by a band called the Radiators from Space, who they'd supported a few months earlier in Derry. As the undertones were using the other band's amps, they took their guitars on the bus to Dublin. Sharky's brother was a reporter for the evening press in Dublin, so they slept on the floor of his flat. Belfield was a fairly big hall, and altogether there were about six other bands playing. While the second band was on, there was a fight in the middle of the hall. It didn't seem to be much of a fight, and it was all over very quickly. The band played on, and the undertones were standing at the side of the stage and couldn't really see much of what happened. It turned out somebody had been stabbed during the fight. He was taken out and an ambulance was called, but the boy died. All this time the concert went on. The undertones played and so did the main band, and then the police arrived. Bradley said, The thing is, some fella comes up to the side of the stage, points at Billy and says it was him. Well, obviously it wasn't Billy, but it took all night to persuade the guarder that we had nothing to do with the stabbing. Billy himself had the hardest time. He was practically accused of doing it by one detective. Eventually, the guarder let them go, and they went back to Fergal's brother's flat, gathered their stuff and got back on the bus to Derry, and stayed there for a year. During this year back in the safer confines of home, the band got better, and were able to do so without the music press writing about them especially as fights were beginning to break out between them. For example, the undertones were playing in a pub in Derry where the tiny stage was above the bar. 
The set had finished and most of the band had come down from the stage, leaving just Sharky and Doherty still up there. The first sign of trouble came when people started pointing up at the stage, where Doherty was swinging a cymbal stand at Sharky. The Undertones stopped fighting long enough to record a demo tape in March 1978 at McGee University in Derry, copies of which were sent to various record companies in the hope of securing a record deal, but they were turned down by all of them. However, one of the tapes got into the hands of a man called Bernie McCannany, whose brother Sammy worked in radio rentals with Sharkey. Bernie was at college in Belfast and knew a man named Terry Hooley who owned a record shop and label there called Good Vibrations. Founded in the early 1970s, Good Vibrations started out in a small derelict building on Great Victoria Street with the objective of introducing punk bands from Northern Ireland to the rest of the United Kingdom, as Hooley did not believe these groups were getting enough attention. The label's first recording was for a local band called Rudy, a single called Big Time. Hooley went on to sign and release groups such as Victim, The Moondogs, The Shapes, Protex, The Outcasts, The Tearjerkers, Shock Treatment and The Lids. Knowing all this, Bernie gave Hooley a copy of the Undertones demo tape. Hooley never listened to the tape and was unsure about signing them. He told the Irish newspaper The Newsletter in an interview in 2008, I wasn't sure about them because nobody liked them. People crossed the road just to spit at Fergal Sharkey. We were going down to get a newspaper and cigarettes and this kid ran across the road to spit on Fergal. And I, that really freaked me out. Well, first of all, I thought he was going to shoot us. And uh, it really freaked me out. And I just could never get, I never really got over that because in Belfast, people couldn't be born to walk across the road and spit on you. But it was just like, here was a band who had even got a, a record contract and this guy was coming over to spit on him and tell him they were rubbish. And I really freaked, I mean, to this day, it's still really terrifying people could do that. But Bernie pestered him until he gave in. He said he'd work with them on a proper recording. Everything was finally falling into place for the Undertones, except for one problem. Sharky had left the band. Whether it was connected with almost being brained by Doherty's cymbal swinging is unsure, but he'd had enough. So the week before they were due to go to Belfast to record their very first single, Bradley talked to Sharky and persuaded him to stay. Bradley remembers... Maybe he just wanted someone to ask him back, but there wasn't a great deal of persuasion involved. Although he was only coming back to make this record, after that he was away. That's fine, Fergal, just this record and that's it. It was never mentioned again. Just before we recorded that, actually, we were, we were more or less given up because we, we kept breaking up due to various reasons. And we were getting frustrated because we'd been playing the Casbah, this place in Derry, for good two years now we had a good repertoire of songs but we were getting nowhere because you know we were just playing Derry and nowhere else so we got this chance to make this record and, and for us it was our last test it was a testament you know that we actually existed you know it was Terry Hooley from the label yeah. uh, paid for the expenses I mean I don't know how much it cost it probably wasn't too much but he kindly put the record out first so he he paid for the studio Frank it was two, two days in the studio and we did four songs because we made it an EP because we wanted to give value for money and we weren't even going to originally put Teenage Kicks on the EP, believe it or not. Because we didn't really, well, some of us didn't think it was that good. And, you know, it was kind of crazy when you think about it. We nearly didn't put it on. 
So, it was, but anyway, something was magic in the air that day when we recorded all, well, all four songs, but especially for Tinny's Kick, because it just, it still sounds, it's still got that. It, I mean, it's a great song, but it's the sound of it, all done on cheap guitars and with a really good studio engineer. Teenage Kicks, the EP, was written in the summer of 1977 by John O'Neill, who was the band's principal songwriter. The band recorded it with Davy Shannon producing at Wizard Studios in Belfast on the 15th of June 1978, and Good Vibrations released it that September. The track listing included Teenage Kicks, True Confessions, Smarter Than You and Emergency Cases. Hooley hustled the EP around every record company in London and he said, they all hated it. I came back to Belfast and cried my eyes out. That same night, Radio 1 DJ John Peel, who had also been sent to copy, played Teenage Kicks on his show. And I'm happy to say that letters have started coming in about The Undertone's excellent EP on Good Vibrations Records. Uh, uh, just this very day, I received letters from John Galway, not the food playing that your dad does, uh, William Brown, I don't touch you much, uh, John DeFalb, and um, that's it actually, but here's the record, Undertones and Teenage Kicks, what a treat. <laughs> Played it again straight away, something he'd never previously done. I'll tell you what, you know, I've not done this for ages, but I think we ought to hear that again. Hold on a second, just talk among yourselves. Listen this when you listen to it this time, those of you who are familiar with the work of Loudon Wainwright, uh, last time I played it, the pig said, That lead singer sounds like Loudon Wainwright at times. It may sound a bit fanciful, but listen to it again and see what you think. An excuse for playing it twice. is a mighty, mighty record, you know. And come the end of the year, that'll be battling with suspect device and shop by both sides as my record of the year, I think. Those are the undertones on Good Vibrations Records, 39 and mad. I remember the very night we knew he was going to play it. I think we got word from John Peel that he was going to play I think so. I could be wrong in this. Maybe we just listen and hoping. We were all gathered around the little transistor and... Um, and he, he played, of course, and then he then said something famous lately, that was so good, I'm going to play it again. <laughs> <laughs> Very unlike he's ever done that before. But you can imagine our house, the, the mayhem, and the phone started ringing, and it was just the, one of the greatest moments ever. Peel declared that Teenage Kicks was his all-time favourite song, an opinion he held throughout his life. The song was played at his funeral in 2004, as his coffin was carried out of the church, and he even had the lyrics, Teenage Dreams So Hard To Beat, engraved on his headstone, which was placed at his graveside at St Andrew's Church in Great Finborough, Suffolk, in 2008. Stone. I was at on John's tombstone where the words say, Teenage Dreams So Hard To Beat. And what a remarkable, incredible thing that is. Um, John told me that, kind of, he was thinking about doing this, but it was always, kind of, I took it lightheartedly in that, well, that was just after the third little half glass of wine on a Friday night and uh, it was getting the better of all of us but uh, it's a remarkable testimony to John O'Neill as a lyricist and indeed John Peel and the impact John Peel particularly had on our career (laughs) 
From the moment Peel played the song twice in a row that night on BBC Radio 1, interest in the undertones grew. Seymour Stein, the president of Sire Records, who was in London from New York on business, heard Peel's show and liked Teenage Kicks. Remember, like it was yesterday, I had been promising that I would go see the searches, and I went with Paul McNally, who, who worked for me, and all of a sudden this record comes on, Teenage Kicks, and it like, I, I mean, it was so amazing, the record, that I just said, oh, pull over, pull over. I said, look, McNally, you're going to Derry. I said, we've got to sign this act, they're fantastic. Sire had begun transitioning from releasing music by prog rock bands to the burgeoning punk scene and had recently signed up the Ramones and Talking Heads. Stein sent a London-based representative, Paul McNally, to Derry to discuss a record deal with the band. McNally saw the band play live in what would turn out to be their final performance at the Casbar on the 29th of September 1978. The following day, he met with the band, Terry Hooley and a few of their friends in the Sharkies' front room to discuss a record contract. We had an entourage of about 15. I mean, he was so intimidated and he couldn't understand us anyway. And he just, yeah. he didn't know who was in the band or who wasn't. You could just see he was like, Whoa. And he was really, co- and because Very. he was really quiet, he got nicknamed Noisy, yeah. <laughs> Noisy McNally. He had been in, you know, uh, in Fergal's house and he said, my God, this, this guy has won every award, you know, uh, the, the, the sitting room is filled with all these awards from the Catholic school that he goes to for, you know, singing in the choir and singing in the church and singing here and in the school. And he said, I said, well, this guy's got such a fabulous voice. Bradley remembered, McNally started talking to us about the contract. Five years, options after the first, seven points on albums, after promotion costs, on dealer price, advance of £20,000 recoupable from royalties, publishing to be decided at a later date, and so on and so on. It meant nothing to us. He could have been offering us our weight in gold, or he could have been offering us our weight in potatoes. We couldn't tell. The O'Neills and Doherty signed immediately, but, not wanting to lose the contract, afraid they needed more time to make a decision and worried Sire would pull out, Sharkey and Bradley agreed they would only sign the contract with Stein in person in London. In the meantime, they sought advice about the contract. Not having a manager at the time, they took the contract to a solicitor in Derry. The solicitor looked at it and said it was OK. He wasn't a music business lawyer who would be able to examine a contract and tell if the deal was acceptable by industry standards or would change it if it wasn't. This was a solicitor more used to clients with riotous behaviour charges than a record contract, but there was nothing wrong with the deal as far as he could see. Sharkey and Bradley were met at Heathrow Airport by McNally and Bradley's sister's boyfriend Paddy Sims, who had taken the photographs of the band for the Teenage Kicks EP sleeve and was staying in London at the time. All four went to see Stein for the final negotiations on the contract. Bradley said, He started talking in the same gobbledygook as we'd heard back in Derry, but at least this time we tried to argue back. We didn't know then that the royalty rate was the important figure and in our contract it was pathetically small. We didn't try to get that changed, but we did manage to get more out of them in advance. £8,000, money which we'd have to pay back. After a few hours of Stein talking to them, Sharkey trying to bluff that he knew what he was going on about, Bradley getting bored, 
and Paddy Sims photographing the whole thing for posterity, a deal was struck and Bradley phoned the O'Neill's house, where the rest of the band was waiting to hear the outcome. Bradley said, I told them about the 8,000 and said we thought it was okay. Now you know how easy it is to be big and brave on the telephone, how you get more nerve if you're not actually standing in the same room as the person you're dealing with. Billy John and Damien did. And Fergal phoned us at home. He wants to give us, I don't know how much it was, um, £16,000 advance. Remember, and we, <laughs> it's just like, we just, me, Billy and John were going, that doesn't sound much, let's ask for 60. So we said, no, we want 60. No, I'm not going to ask for that, Bradley replied to his bandmates. The rich kids got 60,000, reasoned his friends. All right. Bradley took a deep breath, turned around and looked at Stein. We want 60,000. Stein hit the roof. And you can hear this exp expletives in the background. Seymour going apeshit. You must be fucking joking, Lois. <laughs> so of course they were going, turn the fuck off. Tell me we want the same deal as the Clash got. So I did turn around to Seymour Stein and go, no, no, we want the same, uh, we want 50 grand. The Clash got a week and get it. And uh, to his credit, he went, all right then. The undertones were now recording artists. And with bags clinking with whiskey miniatures taken innocently from the hotel minibar, they flew back to Aldergrove. When they got off the train at Derry, they were met by Doherty's father, who gave them a lift back to Sharky's mother's house, all the while grilling them about the record deal he'd literally just found out about. The boys, though mostly Mrs Sharkey, managed to persuade Mr Doherty that his son hadn't made a terrible mistake, that the undertones wasn't a waste of time, and that maybe somebody could make a living out of playing drums. At one point during the discussion, somebody mentioned Damien O'Neill, and Mrs Sharkey said he's a very good guitar player. She'd never seen Damien or the band play, but she knew what to say and when to say it, and Mr Doherty went home with Billy, happy. As well as the increased advance fee of £10,000 on the five-year contract, Sire Records obtained all rights to the material released on the Teenage Kicks EP, and the song was re-released as a standard vinyl single with True Confessions as the B-side on the 14th of October that year, where it reached number 31 in the UK singles chart two weeks after its release. The song was ranked as the second best indie song of all time in a 2016 poll conducted by alternative music radio station 23 Indie. It was only beaten to number one on the poll of DJs and listeners by Freak Scene by Dinosaur Jr. Having almost made a catastrophic error with the way they dealt with signing the record contract, the band decided they needed a manager. Sire supported them with this and had Andy Ferguson look after them while they searched. Ferguson worked for Warner Music Group, Sire Records' parent company. He drove them to their meetings with potential managers in London and gave them advice about what to look for in a manager. Bradley said, we didn't know what to look for. We turned down one man because he didn't buy us sandwiches when we met him at a hotel. Never mind his ability to get us a good deal with a record company or his plans to get us a number one record. We didn't want a tight manager. It was clear the band was getting nowhere fast, so Ferguson offered his services on a temporary basis. He's still looking after the undertones today. With someone in charge, the band could relax, sit back and enjoy the pleasures of being in a band, playing on top of the pops, which they did on the 26th of October, and getting ready for a tour of the UK in November and December, supporting the Rosillos and Johnny Otway, as well as headlining three concerts in Belfast and Derry. That was the theory, Bradley said. Of course, it being us, we couldn't allow it to be that simple. 
Up until the summer of 1978 and the recording of Teenage Kicks, there hadn't been a lot of activity on the relationship front, probably as a result of so much time sitting in the O'Neill's front room playing records. But by the time they'd signed the record deal, most of the band had certain romantic attachments, and some of them didn't like the idea of being away from those attachments. And whenever we had to go away, there were letters written and there were phone calls, and in some cases there were flights home, you know, at great expense, just to see your girlfriend. It was quite hard at the start, you know, because we were just sort of in the throes of maybe three, four months under the relationship when they got signed. Again, I mean, any, what, 17-year-old girl is going to be totally attracted by that rock and roll lifestyle, you know, her husband, her boyfriend, fiancé, whatever, writing all these fantastic songs, getting loads of press written about them, you know, it can be very effective. And it did cause, you know, probably a fairly much 50-50 split within the band. Those that thought being away and experiencing what was going on in the outside world was the most fantastic, wonderful thing ever. Uh, and those who were prepared to do it up to a point. I have bagfuls of letters from John, letters from John saying how miserable it was and it wasn't flash hotels and things like that, you know, but um, horrible for me as well. I didn't like being apart. Do tour and I'd hang on in London for an extra week or two after, after whereas the rest of them would just rush to get home again. So I think and I kind of was more into that kind of rock and roll thing then, you know, getting drunk and stuff as well. And yes, and then, of course, I did manage to discover girlfriends or girls then as well through the band because, you know, I was useless at pulling, so it was instead, you know, they would come to me instead of the way around. But it wasn't, it was very mild as well, don't get me wrong. It wasn't mad, it wasn't, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin either, proportions. Well, I was the oldest, sort of 1920, when we were kind of just starting to become playing a Kiaspa and that sort of thing. And uh, the rest, so the rest of them would have been, Dean was always the youngest, about 15. Mickey and Bully were about 16, 17. But none of us really had any girlfriends, you know? Like, like the only, Caroline's the only girlfriend I've ever had, for example. I remember, I vaguely remember once we went to the Ramones concert in Belfast and John saying, he's going to kill me for saying this. He apologised for going on tour because after all he was, you know, in rock and roll now and he doesn't know what opportunities would arise when he was away, but sort of nice knowing you, Caroline. Um, it lasted all of two days, I think, and he was pleading, banging up my door again a couple of days later. Again, that probably could be, it's in the, the songs as well too, you know, whereas you know, if we were a bit more, you know, uh, had a bit more relationships with women and stuff. The songs might have been different too. I always remember that John, I think I used to work in Wellworths. I worked in Wellworths at the time and John used to come in, do you want to go to the top of Pops in the morning? It was the first time. You know, I was like, what? So we literally, you know, got in a plane the next day. I think we had one bag between us. The band just didn't, I mean, everybody was just totally gobsmacked. It was just so different from anything we'd ever experienced, you know, and getting picked up at the airport and then the record company, people around you and meeting all the famous people on top of the pops, going up to the BBC bar and seeing people there. And then a famous story, I think it was the first time they did Top of the Pops, which restaurant do you want to go to? You know, the world's your oyster. And they chose McDonald's because they'd never been to McDonald's before. Everybody else is going to these fancy French restaurants. I think we always secretly knew we were really good because we had an ambition was to play Top of the Pops. So we obviously, something was going on there in the band. 
and we achieved it. We actually achieved it by going on doing teenage kicks. And it was just amazing because it was kind of like a, a fuck you to people in Derry, people that slagged us in Derry all over the years as well. You know, here we are now, so what are you, you going to slag us off now? Bradley said, looking back, it's amazing that we have this longing to be back in Derry when you consider some of the slagging off we got. We are the undertones. Two days after our first Top of the Pops appearance, we played on the back of a lorry in a playground for a local youth club. It was Halloween night, and we'd agreed to do the show a few weeks before. We were only on for one song, when out of the sky came a shower of eggs thrown from behind the small crowd in front of the stage. As well as the egging, they also received a lot of personal abuse from young men in the street. Sharky, as usual, got the worst. For some reason, he brought out a particularly vicious streak in the youth of Derry. My memories of the earlier days of the undertones before we got signed, and even when we did get signed, it was bedlam. There was constant fights every weekend. Like, we'd pack up our gear and come out of the Casper, and there's always boys waiting to punch your brains out. And even going home, we used to run up William Street, because there's always guys there waiting to hit you slap. <laughs> I don't know why. We did come off in for a fair bit of stick, you know, even... You know, even before we were on top of Pops and, and then afterwards, you know. Well, in, uh, well I guess. a lot of sense with Fergal, actually. A lot of people hated Fergal uh, because he was an exhibitionist. Because mm. we always get abuse in the street, right? But Fergal was the only one who gave him abuse back. He wasn't afraid. We were mm. kind of cowards. We'd... I knew that I personally was uncomfortable there. Um, I obviously didn't set out, certainly I don't think at any time, going, oh, okay, fantastic, I've got a bit of a sort of foothold into a band here, this is, music is now going to be my path out of here. It, it simply could not have been that developed a plan and that developed a strategy because the, the reality and the chances of somebody in our position at that time pulling it off were just so remote it was just not worth thinking about. Uh, the undertones attracted a lot of resentment. They attracted a lot of appreciation from their immediate friends of people who just liked their music and there were other people thinking like them, but they also were surrounded by uh, suspicion and even hostility uh, because they were, I think, perceived as uh, a group of young people who were uh, not conforming uh, to what was expected and what was imposed upon them almost as a sort of communal duty, uh, you know, to, to be you know, part of the bog side and the bog side struggle and to simply express that. So it's a, it must have been very difficult for them. And although they expressed it very casually and did express it very casually, uh, it took away, I suppose, a bit of courage and sort of a steadiness of purpose uh, on their part, actually, to do what they did and to stick with it in the face, sort of, of quite a lot of uh, hostility and, and even contempt. A few months after their Top of the Pops appearance, while they were in the first flush of stardom, they played a benefit show for women's aid at a community centre in the Chantallo housing estate in Derry. While the support band was playing, some youths approached Bradley and asked, where's Sharky? I don't know, he's somewhere out front, Bradley replied. They must have seen the look of fear on his face, because one of them told him not to worry. It was only Sharky they were after. The undertones played their set, but had to get cars to take them home because there was a crowd outside waiting for them. If it was any other well-known band, a crowd outside means autographs and screaming and kisses and pictures. For the undertones that night, a crowd outside meant a good kicking. Doherty and John O'Neill hated being away from home, and Sharky and Damien O'Neill loved it. 
Bradley, on the other hand, had a kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude. He enjoyed being away, and he particularly loved being in London, but he also loved coming home to Derry. Um, we didn't tour that much because various members of the band uh, wouldn't. Some things, though, the undertones were all agreed on. They all hated Thin Lizzy. They didn't know them personally, they just heard their records and they hated them. This was an awkward situation, because the undertones had been added as support to Thin Lizzy at their Christmas show at the Hammersmith Odeon in London that December. Bradley said, There's nothing we liked more than an excuse for a huff. Of course, no one had actually asked us about the show, so we took great delight in saying no. I don't know what it was about Thin Lizzy, but a few years after that, Fergal and I were on Round Table, Radio 1's record review show. Phil Lynott's solo LP was reviewed, and both of us slagged it off predictably. A year after that, we were doing a show in New York, and Phil Lynott came up to say hello. I can't believe I actually did this, but I said to him, sorry about the review, but we just don't like your music, and walked away, leaving the man standing there. I doubt if he even heard the programme, but I couldn't talk to him. It wasn't meant to be as hateful as it sounds, but, you know, Thin Lizzy. Phil Lynott was interviewed in the papers a few months later and was asked about new bands from Ireland. He mentioned U2 and said they were a great bunch of lads, but the undertones, a strange band. The Undertones went into Eden Studios in London to record their debut album in January 1979. The eponymous album took just under four weeks to record and was produced by Roger Behirian, who had recently worked on tracking sessions with the Sex Pistols and on Nick Lowe's album Jesus of Cool. The album, The Undertones, comprises material that the band had been performing at the Casbah since 1977, as well as some songs that had been written towards the end of 1978. During the recording sessions, The Undertones' second single, Get Over You, was released in February 1979 and is a much harder sounding song than Teenage Kicks, with a brief mention of the scourge of most 70s and 80s punk bands Margaret Thatcher in the opening lyric. The song reached number 57 in the UK charts. The photographs of the band on the front and rear covers of the undertones were taken in Bull Park, Derry, in late January 1979, after the recording sessions were finished. They were taken by Derry Journal photographer Larry Doherty. The band insisted that the photographs were to be in black and white, with them sat upon a wall, as they wanted to replicate the cover of the Ramones' first album. The Undertones was reviewed by Robert Criscow in his record guide, Rock Albums of the 70s, which was published in October 1981. He wrote in his lukewarm B-plus review, Nice lads, nice lads. Suddenly the world is teeming with nice lads. I like their punky speed and adolescent authenticity, but I'd prefer the reverse. Among adolescents these days, the speed takes care of itself while finding something besides teendom to write about is a problem. However, Sounds Magazine's Dave McCulloch gave the album five stars out of five in his review in 1979. Melody Maker placed The Undertones as the sixth best album to be released that year on its end of year list in 1979. 
The album was also ranked at number 17 in the NME's Albums of the Year list, with Get Over You ranked at number 32 among the year's top tracks. The Undertones was released on the 13th of May 1979 and peaked at number 13 in the UK and number 41 in New Zealand. The primary lyrical concern of the songs focuses on youthful relationships and adolescence. The album spawned two further singles. Jimmy Jimmy was released on the 20th of April. Two versions of the single were issued, a conventional black vinyl in a yellow paper sleeve with a photograph of a young Sharky holding a trophy he'd won at a Fay competition, and a green vinyl version in a clear plastic sleeve with a paper inlay detailing dates and venues of the then forthcoming gigs across the UK. The decision to release the single in both colours was made by Sire Records to give it a competitive edge in the charts, following the relative commercial failure of the band's previous single, Get Over You. This certainly helped as it reached number 16 on the UK singles chart, making it The Undertone's first top 20 single. However, smash hits reviewer Jimmy White wrote, Hmm, either my record player is on the blink, or the undertones have made a disappointingly weak slab of nothing special, stitched together from bits of other people's old rock hits. Here Comes the Summer was released on the 13th of July, with a sleeve featuring a colour postcard style picture, which was borrowed from a genuine Derry postcard. The song was inspired by the Ramones, and the single version was re-recorded and played faster than the version on the album. Clocking in at 1 minute and 45 seconds, it is the shortest single released by The Undertone. Here Comes the Summer peaked at number 34 in the UK. In September, The Undertones toured the United States for the first time, supporting The Clash on eight concerts in six different states. Personally, to me, it was the, the biggest adventure on the planet. I mean, I just thought it was absolutely just mad to find myself suddenly standing on the edge of the pavement outside JFK Airport, thinking, there's a real live checker cab, and I'm about to get into it and go, take me to Manhattan, please. <laughs> Where, you know, 20 hours beforehand, I was still dungling around in Derry, down the bog side of me green parker. We first flew to visit. New York first time in 1979. We actually supported The Clash for two weeks in uh, East Coast, doing the East Coast tour when they were just premiering their London Collins songs just before that album came out. So you, you imagine, just going to America alone is brilliant, but getting to support the mighty Clash was, was amazing. Oh, we really, well, we were really shy, very kind of insular band. We never, we didn't really like to mix too, you know, they did their own thing, we did our thing, and they were on a big tour bus and we were on a tiny Chevrolet, whatever, driving us around, you know, for hours and hours. So we were slowly getting to meet them, getting to know them actually by the second week and unfortunately but we were just starting to become friends and we had to like it back home because we only did two week tour you know we I think we some of the band didn't want to do the full tour because they want to get back to their girlfriends You've Got My Number Why Don't You Use It was released on the 9th of October 1979 and reached number 32 in the UK and 25 in Ireland. This single didn't appear on the original The Undertones album, even though the album was re-released alongside it in October, including Teenage Kicks and Get Over You, neither of which were on the original pressing either. 
Also included on the re-release was the single version of Here Comes the Summer, which replaced the album version. Following the You Got My Number tour of the UK in October, the Undertones teamed up again with Roger Bechirian and began recording the songs for their second album, Hypnotised, at Whistlelord Studios in the Netherlands. Recording began in December and 10 songs were finished before the band returned to Derry for Christmas and to write further songs for the album. The songs Tearproof, More Songs About Chocolate and Girls and Wednesday Week were written during this break. They were then recorded at Eden Studios in London in January 1980. Although the main content of the lyrics of the songs on Hypnotise continued to focus on teen angst, boisterousness and heartbreak, Several are notably both lyrically and musically more sophisticated than material on the Undertone's debut self-titled album. The photograph chosen for the cover of Hypnotised was taken by Damien O'Neill and shows Bradley and Doherty eating at a seafood restaurant in the Bowery in New York City where the band had been taken for a meal by Seymour Stein on their first tour of America the previous September. Previous to the album's release, the lead single, My Perfect Cousin, came out on the 28th of March. Kevin. Kevin, the self-obsessed nerd that the song depicts, has been a nightmare for Sharky's cousin Kevin, whom people naturally assumed was the subject of the song, especially as Sharky was the one singing the lyrics. Of course, Damien O'Neill is the main songwriter in the band. He and Bradley had co-written the song, and Kevin was actually inspired by a cousin of the O'Neills, Kevin Downey. The artwork for the single's sleeve depicts a Sabutio figure in the colours of the band's local football club, Derry City. A music video was also made for the song, directed by Julian Temple, who shot it in the home of the O'Neill brothers. Duran Duran did their videos in the Bahamas. We did ours in the house, said Bradley. Julian Temple thought it was a great idea to do the video in Derry, and so the cameras and lights and sound equipment and the people to operate them were flown over and installed in the O'Neill's back room. We were to be filmed playing Sabutio football, and as you've probably heard about filming, there's a lot of waiting around. This particular video also took a bit longer because we had to wait until Vinny was finished ironing his trousers in the kitchen. He was going out, you see, and you had to go through the back room to get out from the kitchen. So the trousers were done, and Julian Temple shouts action, and the cameras are rolling, and Fergal pretends to play Sabutio, and the song's being played back so he could mime to it, and the lights go out. The meter had run out. The O'Neill's electricity meter had to be fed 50p's every so often, and the bright studio lights were much more power hungry than the regular bulbs and appliances the O'Neill's owned. Nobody in the band or the film crew had any 50p's on them, so one of them had to run down to the shop at the end of the street and ask the owner, Mrs Crossan, for a few 50p's so they could finish the filming. Thanks to Mrs Crossan and her 50p's, the video was finished, the single was released, and it went to number 9 in both the UK and Irish charts. My Perfect Cousin was voted number 30 in the 1980 NME Singles of the Year poll at the end of that year. The album Hypnotised was released on the 21st of April, reaching number 6 in the UK Albums chart and making it the highest charting album of their career. It also charted at number 33 in New Zealand. The same week, the Undertones embarked on their Humming Tour, which saw the band play 25 gigs across the UK between April and June. 
Less than two weeks after the completion of the Humming Tour, the Undertones toured the United States for the second time, this time as a headlining band. The second single from Hypnotized, Wednesday Week, was released on the 5th of July. The song is notably more mellow than the six previous singles by the band, drawing influences from mid-60s acts such as the Kinks and the Beatles, as opposed to punk rock acts such as the Ramones. Something that's evident even in the cover art, which uses a 60s-inspired, multicoloured, stylized font. It peaked at number 11 on the UK singles chart, the undertone's second highest charting single, and remained in the top 40 for seven weeks. Between September and December 1980, the Undertones performed two further tours, the Disaster Tour, European style, which saw the band performing continental Europe, and, in December, the See No More Tour of the UK. In terms of chart sales, 1980 was the Undertones' most successful year. In a review by Sounds magazine that same year, the Undertones were described as possibly the best pop group in the English-speaking world. The Undertones were subjected to some of the general clichés of being a touring band, such as despite travelling around the world to places they'd never dreamed of visiting before, they didn't get to see much of these places, just the hotel rooms they stayed in and the venue before driving through the night to the next town or city. But in stark contrast to some of the other clichés, it never occurred to them to smash up hotel rooms, throw TVs out of windows into swimming pools, or taking excessive amounts of drink and drugs. Bradley said, You're driven to the hotel, you're driven from the hotel to the venue, you're driven back to the hotel after the show, the hotel's paid for, your meals are provided, your day is usually planned out ahead of you, you're given what is basically pocket money, and all you have to worry about is playing guitar. You don't even have to worry about sleeping in. The tour manager organises an early morning call for you. It's great. It's not good for you, but it's great. I say it's not good for you because you don't learn how to do things for yourself when everything's done for you. It wasn't until after the band that I learned how to drive a car. There was never any need with tour buses and taxis. I had never organised, booked or paid for a holiday myself until after I was in the band. I only saw plane tickets when the tour manager thought I wouldn't lose them. This was when I was going through the gate at the airport. Once through, he took them off me again. I was very bad at operating my bank account. At the back of my mind there was always the thought, ah, I can always get money from the manager. Being in the undertones was a kind of extended childhood. For example, the band would fight over who got to sit in the front seat of the minibus, usually Sharky one, and the rest of the band would make V signs behind his back. Also, every time they stopped at a garage to refuel the minibus, they'd all pile out to buy sweets. The childishness carried on off the tours too. During one round of boredom, Bradley phoned up the NME pretending to be the band's press agent and told them Doherty had been run over by a bus in Derry and killed. Doherty was alive and well, standing right next to Bradley, stifling giggles. Next thing they know, Radio 1 DJ Kid Jensen announces how sorry he was to learn of the death of the Undertones drummer Billy Doherty. The band's manager, Andy Ferguson, heard this and immediately rang the O'Neills, not to find out what had happened to Doherty, but which one of the Undertones had made the story up. Eventually, the truth of the hoax got out, but rather than blame it on the band, their real press agent said that an anonymous person had made the call. We then got a lot of sympathy, said Bradley. 
with newspapers writing about how distressed the members of the band were about this cruel hoax. A year later, Kid Jensen met Fergal and I in London, and he immediately apologised about carrying the story. I don't know how we kept straight faces, but we had to accept the man's apology and agree that it was a terrible thing for anyone to do. What kind of sick mind and so on. I felt really sorry for him. Still never told him the truth, of course. In December 1980, the Undertones, growing unhappy with the lack of promotion they were receiving outside the UK, particularly in the US, announced their intention to split from Sire Records. On the 4th of January 1981, the band returned once more to Whistlelord Studios with producer Roger Betrian to record their third album, Positive Touch. Some of the songs on this album indicated a change, both in musical and lyrical influences. Although the majority of the songs remained largely guitar-oriented, there were some that utilised a more experimental tone, with instruments such as pianos, recorders and brass being utilised. Two of the songs, Julie Ocean and It's Going to Happen, drew musical inspiration from contemporary artists Orange Juice and Dex's Midnight Runners respectively. The band themselves were content with the change of influences for Positive Touch, describing them as a natural progression, and that these songs were their best yet. Damien O'Neill said in an interview with Mick Horton of Uncut in 2008, We'd moved away from the Ramones, Dexys was my thing, and we were listening to a lot of the Stones, Aftermath in particular. It's more 1966 than 1981. Love, blues magoos, that kind of sound which was out of sync with the likes of Duran Duran. But it was also out of sync with what we were doing a year earlier. It wasn't a complete failure. It's Going to Happen was top 20, but that turned out to be our last hit. John O'Neill had started writing songs about the troubles in Northern Ireland, such as Crisis of Mine, You're Welcome, and the single It's Going to Happen. One of the fans used to come up to the Kiazba. He has uh, brawler. I just was in, I'd been inside. I'd just come out. And, uh, and that was at, that was at the time when there were f the first releases of people from from the, the initial uh, reaction from Bloody Sunday, people joining up uh, the IRA were just getting released, and uh, and so he was the first person that I'd ever met that had actually been inside that got released, and uh, and that was that was kind of a weird experience. He was sort of almost disoriented for the first couple of weeks and it was funny watching that, you know, and, and I remember and I, I'd known his girlfriend, you know, she, she'd remained his girlfriend all the time that he was inside and, and uh, the, the song You're Welcome, that was about, again about that there, it's kind of trendy, you know, write a song about that in some way. I remember we were playing an Oscars and uh, somebody got up and said to me, you know, you not think you're in a band, you're in a, you have a platform there to talk about what's going on here, you know, and, and coincidentally, at that time, I was really getting into, into listening to a lot of soul music. And uh, uh, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye, was like my favourite record at the time. And, and that was like a, cla you know, a classic benchmark in soul music as a, as a comment on that, on that whole period of in the 60s and, and, and the civil rights movement in America. And, and, uh, and I thought, well, you know, that's right. we really should at least try and... And, and say something here about what's going on, and, and that that's, that song "Crisis of Mind" was about, the, you know, and the band, and, and trying to, you know, mention about, you know, talk, about, you know, trying to, you know, t 
talk about where you're from and what's happening, but but not been very good at it, and that was a kind of a crisis of a sudden. The single It's Going to Happen preceded the release of the LP and was directly inspired by the 1980-81 hunger strikes in Northern Ireland. The Undertones performed the song on top of the pops on the same day Bobby Sands, one of the participants in these hunger strikes, died. Damien O'Neill wore a black armband during the performance as a sign of respect. The hunger strike was, was kind of an emotive subject. So I just wrote, I had the tune, I wrote the music and, uh, and the chorus was it's going to happen, happen all the time because, you know, Ireland's got a history of hunger strikes. The main chorus was it's going to happen until you change your mind, meaning the British government. He actually did top of pops for it's going to happen on the day Bobby Sands died. And I'm actually on TV with Black Amber. I don't regret doing that actually. Um, but at the same time, I'm very conscious that maybe I probably might have alienated people, Protestants especially, who might have been watching that, going, what's he doing that for? You know, I'm an Undertone fan for years, and, and you know, and, you know, like, obviously, why is he, this is like supporting a, an IRA terrorist here. And I, that makes me a bit uneasy, because I didn't, I didn't want to rub people up the wrong way. Um, there was obviously from day one, the first time I ran into a journalist, it was fairly obvious what the outside world perhaps was motivated by. Because invariably you wanted to talk about politics and what was going on there and why didn't we write songs about barbed wire and on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. It's outrageously dangerous if you lived, that you indicated any sort of allegiance one way or another. Mm. Could have got you in an awful lot of trouble. For us it was more you know, naive in that people honestly believed and to this day it still goes on and I still find myself having the same conversation. People are naive and stupid enough to believe that by turning up in Belfast or Derry and playing on stage for two hours, it's suddenly going to heal and bond a community that's been ripped apart for 400 years. It's like you are dreaming. We lived and breathed what was going on in the early and mid-70s. All day, we dealt with it every single day of our lives. You could not walk to school in the morning without getting stopped and searched and questioned. For us, getting up on stage in the Casbah on a Friday night and getting slightly bombed on three pints of beer, it was pure, utter escapism. And our audience, i.e. our mates, didn't really need us to get up in front of them on a Friday night and start lecturing them about what was politically going and socially going on around them. For them, it was the same thing. Three pints of Guinness and hallelujah, here comes Saturday morning. The Troubles, or the Northern Ireland Conflict, is a large and unwieldy topic to even begin to cover coherently in a documentary that is essentially about a pop-punk band. However, it is worth pointing out how extraordinary it is that the Undertones hadn't grown up writing and performing protest songs, having been formed a mere two years after Bloody Sunday, where 14 unarmed men were shot dead and 15 other civilians were injured by the British Army at a rally in Derry, the band's hometown. Rather, they turned their backs on the violence and threat of their surroundings and wrote catchy teen angst and love songs instead. Following negotiations about the undertones leaving Sire Records, the band's manager Andy Ferguson succeeded in the band retaining ownership rights to their material released on Sire. Ferguson subsequently signed the group to EMI in March 1981. One month prior to the release of their third album in April, the Undertones embarked on the two-month Positive Touch tour to promote the album, which saw them play 36 gigs across the UK, including the performance on Top of the Pops. 
It's Going to Happen was selected by EMI to be released as the lead single on the 21st of April, two weeks before the release of Positive Touch. The single reached number 18 in the UK chart and number 10 in the Irish chart. The album Positive Touch was released on the 5th of May, reaching number 17 on the UK album charts and remaining on the chart for just four weeks. The LP's largely plain white sleeve was embossed with various characters and images and had a colourful inner sleeve. Embossing was an expensive option at the time, which reflects EMI's commitment to the band. The album received favourable reviews from several music critics, including Robert Criscow, who wrote in his B-plus review in his Consumer Guide that just about every one of the 14 tracks is catchy and felt. Almost inevitably though, the arrangements are a little fancier, to no special avail. And the same goes for the subjects. Good luck, lads. Positive Touch was also listed by NME as one of the best albums to be released in 1981, despite it not faring as well as the previous album. Watch her fake in her powers. Following the conclusion of the Positive Touch tour in June, The Undertones released the second single from the album, Julie Ocean. A three and a half minute extended recording of the 90-second album version was produced by Hugh Jones and the Teardrop Explodes keyboardist Dave Balf. Julie Ocean reached number 41 in the UK singles chart and number 30 in Ireland. On the 29th of September, the Undertones embarked on their biggest tour of continental Europe yet, which lasted until the 20th of October, and saw the band perform a total of 19 concerts in six countries. 1982 saw a lull in activity from the Undertones, who only performed live on a total of five occasions throughout the entire year. Two of these gigs were held in England, and the other three in the United States. Much of the time the band spent together that year was devoted to writing and recording songs for their next LP in the eight-track demo studio that they had recently constructed on Abercorn Road in Derry. Damien O'Neill later admitted, We had definitely lost a bit of the spark. I don't know, but I tend to think some of us got too complacent sitting in our homes in Derry. In fact, tensions were beginning to surface due to the band's declining success in the charts with both their albums and singles something that would only worsen in the next year. The Undertones released two singles, Beautiful Friend in February, and the lead single from the upcoming fourth album, The Love Parade, in October. Both of these singles failed to make an impact, with The Love Parade the only one to chart at number 97 in the UK. In March 1983, The Undertones released their fourth album, The Sin of Pride, which had been produced by Mike Hedges, who had previously worked with acts like Bauhaus, The Cure and Susie and the Banshees. The Undertones had further evolved away from the raw punk sound of the first two and a half albums, drawing inspiration from both Soul and Motown instead. In a 1986 interview with the Montreal Gazette, Sharkey stated that he had worked harder on this album than at any point in his singing career to date, and that he considered this album the finest The Undertones ever produced. 
The album's cover depicts the band stood around and sat upon a sofa, covered with a white sheet with a stained glass image of St Columba, the patron saint of Derry, projected across them. White sheeting is also draped across the wall behind them. The image itself was taken inside the band's eight-track demo studio. The rear cover depicts the same location, minus the band or any form of illumination or projected imagery. Instead, the lyrics of each song are printed over the image. Although The Sin of Pride received positive reviews in the music press, the album charted at only number 43 in the UK. The album has since been described by AllMusic as one of the great unsung albums of the early 80s. On the subject of the poor sales of the album, Sharkey said in another 1986 interview with Rolling Stone's Mark Coleman that people still wanted us to rewrite the first album, and we weren't prepared to do that. The Undertones performed several gigs in Scotland and England to promote the release of this album. They released two further singles in 1983. Got To Have You Back was inspired by ABC and Smokey Robinson and was released in February. It did slightly better than The Love Parade, reaching number 82 in the UK singles chart. Its plain blue cover with just the band's name and the name of the single emblazoned on it tells a different story in the confidence EMI placed in it after the extravagance of the embossed album sleeve for Positive Touch. Chain of Love was released in May and failed to make an impact on the UK chart at all. It too featured a plain red sleeve with just a reproduction of the record label printed on. Sharkey said in the Montreal Gazette interview, Certainly the undertones are a completely different band by the time we made Positive Touch, and the last album, The Sin of Pride, which was an even bigger departure. We thought we were doing all these good things, taking up all these challenges, and we felt meeting them and nobody was saying a damn thing about it. Everybody wanted this to be these 16-year-old kids covered in acne and playing teenage kicks. The pressure being put on the band both by themselves and EMI over the underwhelming commercial performance of The Pride of Sin and its singles left Sharky feeling cold towards his bandmates and empty. He said, After that, I just had to get away from it for a while. I felt I had finished myself off anyway as far as bands were concerned. I just couldn't put any more into it and still be constructive or creative. Nothing left to offer. Like any other band, the attention from the crowds, the press and sometimes the record company was directed solely towards Sharky, who to this point hadn't done much to deflect this attention until now, which had been resented by the rest of the band. Bradley said, it didn't help matters that Fergal didn't write any of the songs. If he did, it could be said that this was his band and that was that, but he didn't. He had to rely on what John and Damien, and on occasions I, wrote. So when we were recording in the studio, there would be a bit of tension if he was singing the song in a way that the writer didn't like. Looking back, it should have been left up to Fergal to sing the song whatever way he wanted, but that's looking back. Maybe we never forgave him for naming us the Hot Rods, or for always getting the front seat but there was always a kind of distance between Fergal and the rest of the band. In interviews with the press, Fergal would be saying that he thought about the band, about music, about life in general, and the four of us would be sitting there squirming with embarrassment, thinking, don't be saying that. I don't think we ever actually said it to him, that we were unhappy with his interviews, and it wasn't as if he was saying anything terribly wrong. 
He just had different ideas from us. Sometimes that distance showed itself in other less subtle ways. One snowy winter's day, the band had been rehearsing. They'd stopped to get something to eat, and on the way back from the cafe, Sharky was lagging a bit behind the other four. When they got into the yard of the studios, Bradley and Doherty decided to ambush Sharky with snowballs. Bradley said, It seemed funny at the time. We got ready, a snowball in each hand, and whacked him as he turned the corner. We expected him to start throwing snowballs back at us, but no. He ran straight at us and was ready for blood. I thought he was going to kick my head in. However, what finally ended it for the undertones wasn't some catastrophe or falling out. It was a realisation that the friendship that they had for each other wasn't enough to keep them going, especially at a time when the success of the previous couple of years wasn't as easy to repeat. By 1983, the band had grown up and apart. Four of them had got married, and some had children. They didn't meet at the O'Neill's house anymore, as they each had their own houses. The idea that the undertones had run its course just set in like rot. When Sharkey announced during the band's European tour in May that he was leaving, he wasn't exactly overwhelmed by any pleading for him to stay. Damien, John and Bradley said, that's fine, we want to leave as well. And so it ended. He announced after the Pride we were on tour and we were promoting the LP, like we were in Sweden. He just said, I don't want to do this anywhere. He says, I'm leaving the band. And I remember just thinking, we were all kind of, was relieved, relieved. Relieved. It was in the air for us because yeah. we, we were just playing half-capacity halls and yeah. it was just demoralising. We knew that Fergal was uneasy. He wasn't happy. We knew that he had started to develop almost different tastes in music or else maybe we were too critical of his taste in music. And by 1983, he just got fed up with it. He obviously realised he didn't have to be uh, in a, a group of five where people are criticising what he wore, what he said and what he listened to. The last couple of years in the undertones for all of us was very difficult. Um, and, and again, being honest about it, I would suspect that the conversations generally tried to revolve around, well, can you turn that up a bit or can you turn that down a bit? There is an awful lot of wounds there and they will perhaps take an awful lot of time to heal if at all they ever do get healed. I, I think it's more, has anybody got the motivation to go and heal them at this point in time? Um, and I suspect that may not necessarily be the case. Which is, you know, that, that's okay to me. Um, the, the simple truth was that we all made that decision back in the early 80s. There was a divide between Fergal and the rest of us, I would say, from day one. Um, he, there are a couple of simple things. He worked, he had a job with Radio Rentals, we didn't. He had a bit of money, we didn't. You know, he was earning £35 a week, we were earning £20 a week. Um, he had a car, he didn't write the songs, and... Whenever we were actually in the band and professional and so on, there was uh, almost a, a feeling that we had to watch him, you know, which is really bad attitude when I look back on it. But there were, he would say some things in interviews perfectly within his rights. That's what he really thought. But the rest of us would sort of go, shouldn't have said that. We had no long-term sort of plan. Whatever, you know, like, we were just grateful to get that far. Even We've probably never seen further than the first LP, haven't we? No. The Undertones stayed together for a few months more to play out some concerts in England and some festivals in France, both to fulfil commitments and to make a bit of money. Their last show was to be at the Punchestown Racecourse outside Dublin supporting Dire Straits. They were due to travel from France, but they missed the scheduled flight and had to charter a small plane from outside Paris. 
This cost the band a lot of money, and still only managed to get them to Dublin three hours after they were due on stage. As one paper said, the undertones, late for their own funeral. Both Teenage Kicks and My Perfect Cousin were re-released in 1983 to promote a compilation of the undertones singles and b-sides called All Wrapped Up, but neither fared well, reaching numbers 60 and 88 in the UK singles charts respectively. The cover of the compilation features a photograph entitled Dress to Grill, depicting a woman dressed in various cuts of meat, many years before Lady Gaga's infamous meat dress. Quite why this image was used is anyone's guess, but none of the band members were involved in the decision-making process as they had all gone their separate ways by this point. After the split of the undertones, Doherty drummed in a band called the Carolines with a vocalist called Paul McClune. The Carolines won the Hot Press Best Unsigned Act in Ireland. The prize for winning was to record a single which got some airplay and garnered some record company interest. They were about to sign to Virgin Records, but one of the band members decided he wanted to do other things and the deal fell through. Bradley became a radio producer for BBC Radio Foil and presented a one-hour programme on Radio Ulster called After Midnight with Mickey Bradley. The show featured tracks from the new wave and punk era. He now presents a show titled The Mickey Bradley Record Show, which airs from 7.30 to 9.30 every Friday night on BBC Radio Ulster. 1983 was a terrible year. And I was in the doldrums. That was my worst period personally my life. I broke up my girlfriend and the undertones had broken up. I was broke and I was living in London, expensive rent and all that, and not knowing many people, so it was dreadful. Unfortunately, what saved me then was John and Raymond coming over and playing me their songs, not Petrol Motions, early uh, Petrol Motion songs, and just blew me away, going, wow. And uh, that's what started me again, getting enthusiastic about music and and the gang mentality again of that, that Petrol Motion, you know, of the band, Dairy Boys again and all that stuff. It was great. The O'Neill brothers John and Damien formed That Petrol Emotion in 1984 with guitarist Raymond Gorman, Kieran McLaughlin on drums who had previously depped in the undertones when Doherty was ill, and American-born singer Steve Mack. Damien switched from guitar to bass and even turned down an invitation to join Dex's Midnight Runners to stay with his brother in That Petrol Emotion. Talking to the Tuscaloosa News in 1987, John O'Neill said of the band's name and the lyrical content of its songs, We had to make our stance from the beginning. We had to say, right, we're from Northern Ireland. Our name is deliberately meant to sum up a whole feeling of frustration and anger that you feel living there. In the second episode of Series 3 of Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing, shown in August 2020 and featuring a cameo from Fergal Sharkey, Comedian Paul Whitehouse revealed that he had had an unsuccessful audition to sing for that petrol emotion. The band released a total of 15 singles, none of which broke into the top 40 in the UK, though the 1990 single, Hey Venus, reached number 9 on the US modern rock chart. It also released six albums between 1985 and 1994. The highest charting of these was 1987's Babel. In 
the 1990s, John O'Neill formed a trip-hop group called Rare under the stage name Sean O'Neill with Lockie Morris, David Whiteside and vocalist Mary Gallagher. They only had one notable chart appearance with Something Wild, which reached number 57 in the UK singles chart in 1996. They disbanded shortly after the release of their only album, People Freak, in 1998. That petrol emotion reunited to play a few shows in 2008 and 2009, after which Mac returned to his birthplace, Seattle, to raise a family. Gorman, McLaughlin, Kelly and Damien O'Neill continued working together, initially with the intent of carrying on with that petrol emotion, but in 2012 announced that they had formed a new band called The Everlasting Yeah, playing Krautrock-influenced music. The new band's debut gig was in London in support of the Junebirds, while their debut album, Anima Rising, was released on their own label, Infinite Thrill, in 2014. In 2018, Damien O'Neill used crowdfunding to record and release the Refit, Revise, Reprise album with his new project, The Monotones. Certainly when I left the band, I had absolutely no idea what the hell I was going to do. I know an awful lot of people, at some point I got the impression some people thought I had some sort of huge master plan concocted that I was just going to walk out of the band and go and follow stages one, two and three and it would all be absolutely fantastic and I just hadn't a clue. After the split of the undertones, Sharkey was invited by Vince Clark and Eric Radcliffe of the synth-pop act The Assembly to provide lead vocals on their single Never Never, which was released on the 31st of October 1983, peaking at number four in the UK and remaining on the chart for ten weeks. Sharkey was never officially a member of The Assembly as Clark and Radcliffe planned to use a different vocalist on each song. But the group disbanded after the release of the first single, with Clark going on to form Erasure with Andy Bell. It never happens to me, it never happens to me. Sharkey subsequently embarked on a solo pop career, which was significantly different in every aspect from his work in the undertones. His debut single, Listen to Your Father, was a collaboration with Madness's Chaz Smash under his real name, Cathal Smythe. The single was the first to be released on Madness's label, Zar Jazz Records, in September 1984. All the members of Madness played on the song, with the exception of Suggs. Upon its release, Paul Bursch of Number One wrote, It's not a brilliant song, but its sheer stomping, foot-tapping brightness almost guarantees Fergie a hit. Paul Massey of the Aberdeen Evening Express wrote, I preferred him with the undertones, but this is still good. Bold, brassy and powerful. Jim Reed of the Record Mirror commented, A Carl Smythe tune, Listen to Your Father, is the 4-4 stomp of early madness without the winning melody and hook lines. Sharky's voice isn't well served by the brassy, jolting action. The Ulsterman deserves a more restrained treatment than this. Vicky McDonald of Smash Hits wrote, This man has got one of the best voices around. 
I'm not ashamed to admit that when performing the undertone's perfect pop songs, he could bring a tear to my eye. What then is he doing on this foul pub rock thingy? A terrible waste. Listen to your father reach number 23 in the UK chart and 22 in Ireland. Starkey then left the label to sign with Virgin, which was the company that owned Zarjaz, as Madness had not required him to sign a contract with their label. Virgin then teamed Sharky with the Rosillo's guitarist Joe Callis to write Loving You, which was produced by Queen drummer Roger Taylor, who also played additional drums and synths on the song, and Queen and David Bowie producer David Richards. The song went to number 26 on the UK singles charts, 23 in Switzerland and 97 in Australia. This was enough for Virgin to sign him on a multi-album record deal, and in 1985 he released his debut self-titled solo album. This album includes his best-known song, A Good Heart, which was written by American country rock band Lone Justice's frontwoman, Maria McKee, and produced by Dave Stewart from The Arrhythmics. McKee wrote the song about her relationship with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers keyboard player Benmont Tench. A Good Heart topped the charts in Australia, Belgium, the UK and Ireland upon its release in September 1985. It's also charted in the top 20 in a further eight countries, as well as 37 in France, but just 74 in the US. This was followed up by a second single, You Little Thief, which was written by Benmont Tench and placed directly after A Good Heart on the album, prompting some to theorise that it's his reply to the McKee pen single, something Tench denies. The album itself reached number seven in Australia, number six in the Netherlands, and inside the top 20 in five other countries, including number 12 in the UK. It also reached number 29 in Germany, and just number 75 in the US. However, the next single, Someone to Somebody, reached just number 30 in Ireland and 64 in both the UK and Australia in March 1986, with mixed reviews. William Shaw of Smash Hits commented, Extraordinary, really. Through anyone else's vocal cords, this song would remain a corny, overblown bit of nonsense, full to the brim with too many lead guitars and pompous string arrangements but Sharky's quavering tones have a strange power to change an average song into something out of the ordinary. Whereas Henry Everingham of the Sydney Morning Herald wrote, as a soloist, one fears that Sharky could easily sink into mush. Someone to somebody teeters on the edge of this. While the song has some tasteful flute and saxophone solos and terrific harmonies, the howling of I'm so alone at the song's end is a bit too much to take. The fourth single from the album, It's All Over Now, a cover of a 1964 number one by Womack and Womack failed to chart anywhere. In May 1986, to promote the release of Shero Bowley's Pick of the Undertones compilation and to cash in on the success of Sharky's solo career, the single Save Me was released. 
Save Me was a cover of a song by The Miracles and was originally released on The Undertone's final studio album, The Sin of Pride. Unfortunately, the single didn't make a dent in the charts anywhere and managed to upset the whole of the band as it was packaged as a song by The Undertones featuring Fergal Sharkey. Sharkey's second album, Wish, was filled with incredibly talented musicians, including Keith Richards, who plays guitar on a couple of tracks, and was released in 1988. It was an ambitious project, and included themes on sectarian violence in Ireland. For example, Sharkey said to Lisa Hand of the Sunday Independent that Blue Days was about my last return to Derry, and how soul-destroying I found it, seeing what living there has done to all my old friends. He added in a Record Mirror interview, I wrote the song because I believe at the end of the day, despite sectarian differences, nobody is happy with what's going on in Ireland. The title was inspired by Reverend Ian Paisley's comment, we will never forsake the blue skies of Ulster for the grey mists of an Irish republic. Sharkey also said in the Sunday Independent article, I've never devoted myself so much to an album before, so if it comes out and nobody gives a damn about it, I would be extremely disappointed to say the least. Billboard described the album as an even better follow-up to Sharkey's debut, and one that should soon be sitting firmly at the top of the charts. Cashbox described the album as a slickly crafted collection of pop numbers that should finally enable the artist the edge at top 40 radio he deserves. Stereo Review commented, The first solo album by Fergal Sharkey was so subtle and understated that much of it barely registered. This time around, he's made a record that cannot go unnoticed. With the help of producer Danny Korchmar, whose guitar playing is the instrumental heart of the album, Sharkey takes a measured soul turn. The reviewer went on to praise five of the album's tracks as gems, but then added that the rest of the material gets thin. They concluded five out of the ten tracks are hardly memorable, but the good ones are very good. Despite the critical acclaim, the album only charted at number 22 in Sweden and number 66 in Australia, and none of its singles broke the top 40 anywhere. In a review written pretty much directly to Sharky, John Azelwood of Number One said, So why is our Ferg hitless? One thing's for sure, it can't be the music. Wish is a steady grower which creeps up on you like exams, only it's fun to listen to. And does that voice fair quiver? It does indeed. Nice one, Ferg. Ignore the barracas. I can see clearly Following on from the disappointment of Wish, Sharkey released his third album, Songs from the Mardi Gras, in 1991, which produced the single I've Got News For You. Released on the 25th of February, I've Got News For You reached number 12 in the UK and 8 in Ireland. Upon release, John Mangan of The Age wrote, This one is a syrupy ballad with more than a hint of the 50s. It's agonisingly predictable, but your man does have a decent voice. Music and Media wrote, Sharky comes back stronger than before, a soul duel. However, even though the Evening Herald liked the single, they had other thoughts on the album, saying, Despite the obvious pop appeal of his pristine single, I've Got News For You, Sharky's album is shockingly ordinary. The album, Songs From The Mardi Gras, received mixed reviews. Adam Sweeting of The Guardian wrote, 
Despite the nostril-assailing whiff of career calculation, Songs from the Mardi Gras is at least a good deal better than its predecessor, The Deplorable Wish. Hi-Fi News and Record Review considered the album to prove that the days of the undertones are wiped from Sharky's memory, and he is definitely a man of the world. Money-minded, starstruck and shallow. They concluded, Songs from the Mardi Gras is about as intelligent a title as the lyrics on this album deserve. Songs from the Mardi Gras reached number 27 in the UK and 41 in Sweden, and none of its further two singles charted anywhere. Speaking of the album and decision to finish his solo career afterwards, Sharkey told The Telegraph in 2013, It's going to sound kind of pathetic in many ways, but it was what I was feeling at the time. The last album I made emotionally, I put a colossal amount into it, and it just felt I could not go on making that kind of intellectual and emotional investment anymore. I can still turn on radio stations all over the world and hear a good heart being played. That must be... It's stunning. I mean, what more does any musician want out of life? And it was you know, always something, even from the earliest days, that when we were getting the band together, we kind of wanted to try and achieve that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time, people would still find some validity to what you'd done. Even if it was just as pure entertainment and background noise, the fact that they're even willing to accept it that far and not just dismiss it utterly as complete drivel and dross, it's an achievement all in itself. After he ended his pop career, Sharkey moved into the business side of the music industry, winning many industry awards along the way. He started as A&R for Polydor Records and then as managing director of EXP Limited. He was appointed a member of the Radio Authority from December 1998 to December 2003. He then became chairman of the UK government task force, the Live Music Forum, in 2004, to evaluate the impact of the Licensing Act 2003 on the performance of live music, and gave public evidence before the Culture, Media and Sports Committee on the 11th of November 2008. In 2008, Sharkey was appointed as CEO of British Music Rights, and later that October, he became head of UK Music, an umbrella organisation representing the collective interests of the UK's commercial music industry, a post from which he resigned on the 11th of November 2011. In 2011, Sharkey made a one-off appearance with Erasure and special guests, singing the Assembly song Never Never. He stated that he had not sung live for 20 years and that Vince Clark was the only person he would have returned for. Sharkey was appointed an OBE in the Queen's 2019 Birthday Honours for services to music. He is a lifelong fly fisherman and has campaigned against the pollution of British rivers, particularly chalk streams, which is how he came to appear in the Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing episode, where he discussed the environmental pressures faced by Britain's chalk rivers. A lovely spot, in it? So. Yeah, it is. The Lee, up here and in certain places, it's a chalk stream. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there aren't many of those in the world. And do you know one of the guardians of our chalk streams? He's an unlikely person. Fergus Sharky, he saw it, hasn't I? Oh, I found the tongue. Oh, yes. And he's very hot on conservation. What, like he's an activist? He's an activist. And I got in touch with him, and uh, we're going to meet him. Fergal Sharky on the bank. Fergal Sharky on the bank. Well, I look forward to that. It'll be so difficult not to sing. Teenage Kicks or My Perfect Cousin, wasn't yeah. it? Virgil, you're a sort of <laughs> unlikely champion of the chalk stream. 
don't you? Well, that, that's incredibly gracious of you mm. to say shark streams have the most pristine water in the planet. Mm. It yeah. spends anything from a six months to 60 years filtering through chalk. Yeah. So you suddenly have this phenomenally clean, pristine water. Mm. And we are treating them really, really badly. Yeah. We're simply taking all the water out of them. And secondly, believe it or not, dumping raw sewage into them on a monotonously regular basis. You can dump raw sewage into chalk I have. Uh, last year, we dumped 39 million tonnes of sewage into the Ooh. River Thames alone. Just directly in? Yeah. I think it's probably at that stage now where, yeah. you know what, mate, if we don't do something, mm. we're going to lose them and we're going to yeah. lose them in the next three or four years, yeah. if not sooner. Understood. Being a lippy... Irishman? No, surely not. And clearly having some practice in standing behind a microphone and being very loud, yeah. I suddenly thought, well, Fergal, you know what? If anybody cares that you still stood on the stage and sang yeah. and is prepared to listen for two minutes, yeah. well, you better get up and start saying something and kicking up a fuss. Yeah. I'm glad someone's taken the battle, Fergal. Yeah. Do you know, we have a shared sort of um, history in a way, though, because I actually auditioned for a band called That Petrol Emotion. Oh, get out of here! <laughs> to, to explain this one, Bob, uh, when I left the Undertones, a couple of the guys set up this band called That, that Petrol, Petrol Emotion. Emotion. Yeah. So clearly that, didn't get up. I didn't pass the audition. Go on, to be honest, To be honest, Fergal, I went in and I was slightly, so I was slightly enhanced, Every time if you know what I mean. <laughs> Go on. Another girl in the neighborhood. I wish she's mine. She looks so good. I wanna hold her, wanna hold her tight. Get teenage kicks right through the night. All right, all right. Right, so shall we try somewhere else and pause? Yes. Let's go and find a little bit where we can both get a run in. The Undertones reformed in November 1999, initially to play concerts in Derry. Sharkey was offered the opportunity to rejoin the group, but turned the offer down. There was a certain irony in there that I was being asked on my 36th birthday to stand in a muddy field in Germany in front of 100,000 Germans singing Teenage Kicks. So, hmm, OK. Fergal's notion that the, that the band are too old is probably a very valid one. Um, but it's different with, see, it's very, see, this is such an obvious and stupid thing to say, but thinking about it and doing it are two completely different things, and doing it, it takes on a different light. When you actually do it, it takes on its own character, it takes on its, its own presence or whatever, it just becomes a different thing. So I, I think it, it would have been a corny thing to say, 40-year-old men getting on stage singing about Teenage Kicks, and I agree with them, it does seem corny. But when you're doing it, it's not like that at all. Everyone loves it. And it's great. And you don't really think about it, you just do it. And you kind of think, well, geez, everyone's having a good time, so why not just keep doing it? And just get on with it. I always seem to kind of, the whole undertone thing seemed a bit of an embarrassment to him. I always got that, that, that kind of impression, that yeah. the whole, that whole kind of naive little boy sort of thing. His position as frontman was then taken by fellow Derry native Paul McLoon who had played with Doherty in the Carolines. And he was just perfect, because not only could he sing, well, he didn't sing exactly like Fergal, but he was a great singer, great frontman, and he, you know, he had the Derry accent as well, which really helps. I don't think it would have worked if he was American or from London, you know? No, I think that would have been, that would have been a really bad move, I think, you know, because yeah. people would have twigged that straight away. Yeah. And you just go and do, I just go and do it 
open my mouth and whatever comes out basically and some people have drawn comparisons and said he sounds a bit like him but I've never tried to. Mm -hmm. I think the kind of key to this is that uh, the undertone songs for some reason don't lend themselves very well to the kind of mid-Atlantic croon yeah. that a lot of singers adopt and maybe that I would adopt, you know, singing with other bands or whatever. The only way to sing an undertone song really is in a Derry accent. McLean grew up in Derry at the same time as the rest of the undertones and had begun a radio career in the late 1980s, first appearing on BBC Radio Foil on The Jerry Anderson Show, where he came to prominence by successfully impersonating Prince Charles on an interview with the DJ. Anderson then took McLean under his wing and mentored him in his early career. McLoon eventually became a radio producer and was later involved in producing various programmes for the BBC, including his own satirical sketch series called McLoon, which ran for three series in the early 1990s on BBC Radio Foil. In March 1999, McLoon moved to Dublin in the Republic of Ireland and joined the national independent radio station Today FM, where he produced the Ian Dempsey Breakfast Show. During his time on the show, McLoon also co-created and co-wrote the comedy sketch series Gift Grub, alongside Irish comedian and impersonator Mario Rosenstock. The reformed undertones played its first gig at the Nerve Centre in Derry on the 19th of November 1999. It has since played intermittently and undertaken several tours across the UK, Ireland, continental Europe, Japan, Turkey and North America and continues to perform live today. In 2003, The Undertones signed to Sanctuary Records and released an album of brand new material, Get What You Need, on the 30th of September. All music reviewer Tom Jurek wrote in his four stars out of five review, it's almost unthinkable, really, that Derry's fabled good-time teen punks of yesteryear would record and continue without frontman Fergal Sharkey, let alone that their output would be anything less than embarrassing. Reform without Fergal is just what the undertones did, and the results are nowhere near embarrassing. John O'Neill still kicks ass as a songwriter of tight, focused, greasy little ditties, where girls and more girls are the predestined and predominant orders of the day. You have everything you need for a complete escape to more innocent, drunken, loutish times with a smile on the faces of everyone in your immediate vicinity. Virtually everything here is solid, but thrill me, I need your love the way it used to be and everything but you, the first three tracks, are so good you might never get past them. Other knockouts are the rave up you can't say that, the anthemic enough, oh please, and the heavier than god garage rock of shutdown which are enough to make a punter wet himself. Recommended. Uncut magazine gave a favourable review as well, remarking that its songs inhabit the same ageless corner of garage band heaven as earlier classics. In contrast though, Blender gave it two stars out of five and stated that they sound more like a road-toughened bar band. Neither Get What You Need nor its sole single Thrill Me managed to enter the charts. In 2004, after five years producing The Breakfast Show, McLoon resigned from Today FM to go freelance, working with various TV and radio stations, where he produced numerous programmes, including for the Irish national broadcaster RTE. He also worked on the radio stations RTE Radio 1 and RTE 2 FM. In late 2005, Tom Dunn, frontman of the Irish band Something Happens, asked McLoon to produce his show on Today FM called Pet Sounds, which he did until 2008. To leave the world 
On the 15th of October 2007, Cooking Vinyl released The Undertone's sixth studio album, and the second with McLoon on vocals, Dig Yourself Deep, which received a warm reception. All Music's Stephen Schnee wrote, What a treat it is. The songs on Dig Yourself Deep are a true return to the classic sound of the undertones, infectious songs that are short, sweet and to the point. Fergal's voice could sometimes be a little grating over the course of an entire album, but not so with McLoon. He has better command of his voice and is able to be more forceful where Sharky was sometimes little more than interesting. Dig Yourself Deep, Precious Little Wonder, Tomorrow's Tears, Everything You Say Is Right, We All Talked About You and She's So Sweet are perfect additions to the band's hook-laden catalogue and sound like the missing links between the Hypnotise and Positive Touch albums. And out of the 14 tracks, only one song gets close to the three-minute mark, and not one of them gets remotely close to outstaying their welcome. Any Undertones fan who has held back on giving them a go since their reformation should do themselves a favour and dig in deep. DIY Mag's Becky Ross agreed, writing, On the whole, Dig Yourself Deep has plenty of tracks to delight the old-school punks, as well as being fresh enough to catch the attention of new kids too. The longest track clocks in at just shy of three minutes. It's clear these boys still live by the glorious go-in-blazing, knock-em-dead-quickly ethics of punk. In spite of so much water under the bridge, it's extremely gratifying to know that some things never change. Of course, the undertones aren't reinventing the wheel anywhere on Dig Yourself Deep. And who can blame them? If you've got such a fantastic winning formula, why on earth would you tinker with it? Again though, the album failed to chart and this time produced no singles. McLoon switched from producing radio to presenting. At first, his role was intended to last for three months until a replacement could be found. However, because of the increasing popularity of McLoon's unnamed show, he became a permanent fixture and the Paul McLoon show was launched in September 2008. He also began a career in voice acting, playing the villain Baboon in the animated TV show Skunk Fu, as well as a character in the animated movie Moon Man. He has also appeared in a 2014 video for the song Cherry Bomb by the Dublin band The Minutes, where he plays an Elvis impersonator. On the 20th of April 2013, The Undertones released their first new material for over five years with the double A-side single, Much Too Late, and When It Hurts I Count to Ten. This single, recorded at Toe Rag Studios in London, was released in a limited run of 1,000 numbered copies as part of a promotion for Record Store Day in the UK. To date, this is The Undertones' final release. It's still great. Um, you know, that was 1999 and we are still, after two, supposedly just two shows, we've been around the world again. We're constantly doing shows and just, you know, it's not a full-time career. What's good now, it's, it's, there's no pressure. You know, it's, it's, there's no record company saying, you got to do this, you got to do that. We just do it in our, when we can and we have enjoyment, we see a bit of the world, whatever, and then we stop and everybody's usually back to their day jobs or whatever. You know, it's just great. Yeah. I mean, do you have a day job? Though? I say I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Neither does John, but then he wrote his kicks. He's, yeah. he's doing okay. Yeah, he'll be all right for the yeah. rest of his life. <laughs> and hopefully he'll always remember me when I'm down and out. <laughs> We've had an opportunity of doing it again, so to speak, and this time we can do it on our terms. That's the beauty about it, because we don't need it. You know, we can all go back to our day jobs, do our own thing, but the more that we're doing it, 
I think gradually everyone's kind of getting a wee bit, God, this could go to, this, this could develop and do something a bit more. And maybe the rest of the guys in the band really don't want to analyse it because it might be wishful thinking. And it's a thing that's kind of happened and maybe you should just let, let it lie and just kind of move on and get on. Because they're older and they got ways and families and those things are more important. It's funny, but it's taken us 20 years to realise, actually realise now how good we were. That's the ironic thing. Though, when we were actually going, I don't think we rated ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We didn't realise that then. But now we can see, God, you know, we, we were a great band. Mm. The Undertones grew up in a country in turmoil, but theirs was a story that seemed not to be shaped by it in the same way that Stiff Little Fingers would be just a year or so later. Instead of forming their identities and writing songs around politics and rage, they escaped into a world of teen angst, unrequited love and chocolate bars to express themselves, and also to escape into a world informed by the rock and roll music they grew up loving. Through this, they have created some of the most innocent and pop-influenced music of the 1970s punk movement, a couple of which have stood the test of time and are constantly referred to and feature on compilations to this day. And let's not forget, this was a band that was forced into existence by sheer willpower, by four friends, none of whom even owned an instrument, and a guy who was good at Irish dancing who became their singer. I think what the, the, the whole sort of punk thing, it's what opened up for that generation was that anybody could do anything and have a go at anything and it didn't matter that you actually had no equipment and that even if you had, it didn't matter because you couldn't play it anyway. You were still a band. What a ridiculous idea. We're a band. Yeah, but you've got no gear and you can't play. But it doesn't matter. We're a band. That the undertones continues to play sporadically to this day is a testament to their friendship and their love of making music, which was the foundation upon which the band was formed back in 1974. Teenage dreams really are hard to beat. for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at Band Biogs, Instagram at Band Biographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 